Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 11, starting with verse 14. Last Sunday we delved into the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer. We spoke about what the Lord's Prayer means and what it doesn't mean. We also saw many aspects of prayer, including hindrances to prayer and why we should pray at all. You know, what's the purpose of prayer? So we pretty much covered a lot of aspects of prayer in that uh, section. Today we're going to see more domination over the demonic kingdom. And Jesus springboards this into a lesson on loyalty to God. By the end of the service, many of us may be asking ourselves regarding God, are we loyalists or are we fence-sitters? Let's begin in verse 14. It says, And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. As we've seen previously, demons were able to cause a variety of physical maladies. Should that surprise us? Not really. Because whether it's demonic oppression or some type of physical defects, genetic defects, or death, the root of it is sin. The soul that sinneth shall die, the Bible says. When sin entered the world, death entered the world, and all the ramifications of it. So plainly, sin is falling short of God's perfection. We saw when Satan fell from grace. Uh, it was rooted in sin. It was rooted in pride. Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden and were booted out. Uh, it was also rooted in pride. And all of our problems today are all manifestations of somebody's sin, whether our own or somebody else's. So then the big question is, people ask, why does God allow suffering? You know, if you've been a Christian for a while, people will come up to you, you're trying to talk to them about God, and they have all these speed bumps for you, these tough questions that they ask you. But why does God allow suffering? Well, he doesn't prefer it, but it's a result of our choices since the beginning. You see, for us to truly love God, God can't force us into slavery to love him, because that's not truly love. It's the old, uh, the old cartoons about the cavemen. He'd knock the girl on the head and then drag her by the hair into his cave, you know? That's not love, that's slavery. Uh, so God is not going to do that with us. To truly love him, he has to give us the free will and the choice to love him. And unfortunately, because there's so much choice of 5.5 billion people on the planet, most of us make poor choices and we hurt other people. In the case of dictators of a country, they can affect millions of people in their own countries for starvation and, and all kinds of other problems. So, but modern society laughs at the word sin. You say sin, and their response is, oh, that's so 16th century sin. It's a silly word to them. What does the Bible say? Let's, let's turn to Isaiah 5, 20 through 21. Two short verses. Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. So you see kind of a reversal of things. We have what God's way says. The Bible was written for all things pertaining to life and God and godliness. Everything that we need according to life is in the scripture. But people are saying, well, you know, we're very modern. You know, we're 21st century. Things have changed. Times have changed. So maybe we should kind of update the Bible because it's not applicable anymore. But that's not true. So Isaiah speaks about a time which was happening in his, in his day, and it's also happening in our day. 
where whatever God says, if we believe that, we're looked at as fundamentalists or radicals. You know, I can't believe you think that. That is so 16th century. But it's true. The world is kind of turned the wrong way now. It's, it's, up, it's on its head and we have to right it, you know, put it back on its feet. First Peter 4, 1 through 6 is another inter- interesting passage of scripture. First Peter 4, 1 through 6. Peter says this. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So we have different priorities now as, as being born-again believers. Verse 3, we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in licentiousness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. How many of you have, the Lord has taken a hold of your heart, the Lord has changed your life, you've grown, and maybe some of your your clique, your friends, think that you're weird now. You don't do what they do anymore. Well, it's right here in the scriptures. Well, come on, well, why don't you want to do that anymore? They can't understand it, but the Lord is growing you, right? The next verse says, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who were dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. It's not that we should take a haughty attitude. We should actually love these people. We should actually, uh, the light that we have should be spilling over onto these people. You know, not that, well, I can't associate with them anymore, but it's more of a love. You know, the Lord has changed you and you want the same thing through prayer and the word of God for them also. It's better to suffer peer pressure here than in the judgment. Let's face it, everybody suffers from peer pressure. You know, we like to, as adults, think, oh, that's a teenager thing. Come on. We all have issues with peer pressure in some form or another. But if you feel that your peers are looking down on your newfound faith, they're looking down on your desire to follow God, and you feel maybe a little uncomfortable by the comments that your friends are making. Well, look at it this way. In the end, in the judgment, there'll be the Lord Almighty. There'll be the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There'll be the host of the heavenly angels, the holy angels, and there'll be the saints. Certainly, at that point in the judgment, when it's too late to change your mind, imagine the type of peer pressure you'll feel there. So it certainly doesn't compare with the minor, the light affliction that we feel today from some of our peers. I'd rather suffer with him now and be loyal, to, uh, be loyal to God in the end. Verse 15. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. Now, depending on the condition of each person's heart, everyone weighed in on the obvious miracles that were performed. Some favorable some unfavorable, as we see here. Some hearts were so hard that nothing would do it for them. No matter what Jesus did, it wouldn't do it for them. Jesus even told that parable of the rich man and and Lazarus. And the rich man is in torments in Hades. And he says, you know, even if somebody comes back, you know, send somebody from that place to tell my other brothers. He had like six or seven other brothers uh, about this horrible place and not to go here. And Jesus said, even if someone was to rise from the dead, it wouldn't make a difference to your brothers. And what he was speaking about was the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. 
uh, Paul tells us that 500 people at one time saw the risen Christ. And there's plenty of people who still didn't believe. So sometimes the hearts are so hard that nothing will do it for them. But who is Beelzebub? Uh, you've probably heard that term before. What the translation is, it comes from the word Baal, which means Lord, who was a chief false god of the Canaanites, and Zebub for flies. So it was really the, literally the Lord of the flies. But more manuscripts, the majority text and, and the uh, Nestle Allen and a lot of other manuscripts, more have uh, Beelzebul, which doesn't sound, so what, Beelzebub, Beelzebul, who cares? <laughs> doesn't sound like much of a difference, but it is. It's Hebrew for the Lord of the habitation or the Lord of the dwelling. Now, that makes more sense regarding Jesus' response to these people in this passage, which we'll see. Either way, Jewish people understood this term to mean Satan himself. That was a, a word that they used for Satan. Sort of like we have many terms. Satan, the, the devil, the dragon, Lucifer, Apollyon, Abaddon, all these different titles for the same person. So this was clearly an insult to Jesus. Now, all the miracles that Jesus did wasn't enough, and now he casts out more demons, and it's still not enough. Some people, no matter what work that God is doing, are still not satisfied. You just can't please them, no matter what they see happening. It reminds me of a story. I'm going to tailor it to my own liking. There was a neighborhood that got flooded, and the floodwaters came, and people's basements started filling up, and everybody started to leave, except for Bob. Bob stayed behind. Like, come on, Bob, you know, it's, it's going to get bad. There's monsoons. He's like, no, I'm waiting for the Lord to do something. Okay, Bob, everybody leaves. Well, now his first floor starts to fill up and the water's up to his chest. So some of the uh, neighborhood people come back in a rowboat. They said, Bob, we have an extra spot in the rowboat. Come on, come on, we'll take you to safety. Bob goes, nah, I'm waiting for God to do something. So they leave. The water gets really high, goes up to the roof. Bob has to climb up on his roof. And now the police come with a speedboat. And they say, Bob, we've got an extra spot in the speedboat. Come on, we'll take you to safety. Waiting for God to do something. Don't worry about it. Now the water is so high that Bob is on the pinnacle of the roof, and the water's up to his chest. Coast Guard helicopter comes by, throws one of those foldable ladders down. Bob, grab the ladder. We'll take you to safety. Thanks anyway. Waiting for God to do something. Well, Bob eventually drowns. You knew that was coming. So he goes to meet his, the Lord, his creator, and he says he's mad at him. He's like, Lord... I was waiting for you to do something. You know, I'm, I'm really disappointed that you didn't try to save me. And God says, listen, I sent two boats and a helicopter. What more did you want me to do? So that's what about Bob? Verse 17. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also was divided against himself, how will this kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Note, nobody denied his miracles. Okay, that we, we have established. Now, not only the scripture, not only several of the authors and uh, many of the authors in the Old Testament who uh, even prophesied of the miracles before Jesus came to earth. We have the whole Bible. All right, let's even put that aside. Uh, Josephus Flavius was a very popular Roman historian. He wrote a lot of works to uh, speak about the times that he lived in. One of the books was Antiquities of the Jews, book 18. And he said in his book, he said, at this point in time, there was a wise man named Jesus. And then he pauses and he says, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he did wondrous works. Now, Josephus clearly was not a believer. 
But when he was writing a, a secular history book, he wasn't even sure if he should call Jesus a man, meaning maybe he, he is a god because of the amazing things that he did that nobody could dispute. It's pretty amazing. The other thing is Muhammad ascribes to Jesus' miracles in the Quran. So the shame of it is how many pastors today don't believe in the literal miracles of Jesus. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in the resurrection. They're just up here earning a paycheck. It's like, what a, what a, what a fraud. It's like, hey, go find another job. Go swing a hammer or something. Don't be a pastor. That's awful. What a terrible representation. But in this section, we see the folly of their blasphemous accusations against him. Jesus' response was, if I'm from Satan, why am I trying to destroy his kingdom by casting out his defenders? Jesus was trying to use logic on them, right? Last week, uh, my squad on the police department was looking for a fugitive. We went, we found the house, and we pretty much, you know, surrounded the house, all that kind of stuff. Now, let's say there was about nine of us. We all come. We got guys in the back of the house. We got guys in the front of the house. We know he's in there. And just before we go to kick in the door, I take out my gun. I start shooting my guys in the leg, and the fugitive escapes. Could you really say I was part of the team? You think I'd continue to be employed as a police officer? No, I'd be tried for crimes against the state. Jesus is making the same type of analogy. If I'm from Satan and I'm hamstringing Satan's defenders, how, how is Satan's kingdom going to stand? Verse 19, he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Now this is not literally a person's son. He says, who do your sons cast them out by? Now, this was an expression. In the Old Testament, there was a term called sons of the prophets. It didn't literally mean that the prophets had 20 sons. It meant that these guys were disciples of the prophets. It was uh, an affectionate term. Uh, but Jesus may have been referring to religious disciples. Jesus may have been referring to men of that generation that made a practice of following God. So what Jesus is saying is, that the, the brush that they painted him with would have had to been a lot broader now to start painting that brush and start including even those people that his accusers thought favorably of, their sons, the people of that generation. So again, he's trying to stimulate them to help them understand that the folly of their thoughts. You know, I wonder if Jesus ever got frustrated. <laughs> I would have got so frustrated. What do you mean? You know, he's... Jesus is so pure, so holy, the sinless one, and they're attributing miracles and demonic you know, exorcisms by the power of Satan. So, verse 20 says, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. The finger of God. This was an expression used in Exodus 8:19. This was the time where Moses was uh, putting the plagues, the ten plagues on Egypt. And between a few of the plagues... Uh, Pharaoh's magicians tried to, you know, at least duplicate the plagues and try to, you know, see if they could use the same power that Moses had, and they couldn't. They were, it was futile. So they turned to, uh, to Pharaoh and said, this Moses does these miracles and puts these plagues by the, finger, the very finger of God, right? So the amazing thing is that Moses did miracles with the finger of God, but here Jesus is the finger of God. He is that finger. And he also ushered in the kingdom of God. Jesus is trying to stimulate their cold hearts, to stimulate their hearts into life. Why? Because he loved them. Because the Bible says that God desires all men to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4, and that he is the savior of all men, 1 Timothy 4.10. See, 
What we forget is God doesn't just love the obedient. He also loves the disobedient. His desire is for all men, all mankind, all people on earth to be saved. And if that's something certainly that we talk about a lot of things in the scripture, but God's love knows no bounds. And uh, I don't think that sometimes we do a great job explaining truly God's love. We talk about a lot of things, and there's a lot of correction in this book because we're like children as human beings. We keep making the same mistakes. We need that discipline. But we should never forget God's love. We should never forget how much he actually really loves us. Even these people who are insulting and vile and crucified him and spit at him. And uh, Jesus, while he was on the cross, said, don't hold this to their account. This particular sin, don't hold this to their account. He loved them so much, no matter how much they abused him, he still loved them. Now, we would want revenge. People cut us off on the highway. We want to cut them back off, right? Something simple. But Jesus is crucified and is not looking for revenge. But the next six verses here, Jesus uses two illustrations to help the audience understand the real Beelzebul. And some may see how some may unwittingly be serving him without knowing it. Verse 21. Jesus says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Satan here, of course, in verse 21, is the strong man. That's the picture. He is the the, the leader of the demonic realm. Uh, His kingdom, Satan's kingdom, originally forfeited by Adam and Eve, is secure pre-Christ. In verse 22, Jesus is the only one to overpower Satan and plunder him. And he's the only one that can plunder the real Lord of the dwelling. See, that term comes into play here because he's using two examples of a dwelling or a house. And the first one, Satan is secure in his house. In this case, it's a palace. He's secure in his domain until one stronger than him comes and overtakes him. So Jesus destroyed Satan's armor in the form of the cross and the soul's are represented here by the spoils, the people that he had in slavery to sin and hell. Satan was defeated via the cross and gives anyone on earth, Jesus gives anyone on earth access to heaven if they so desire. Kind of think about um, when terrorists take, you know, in, in the day of terrorism, we see kidnappings all the time. Terrorists kidnap people. And, you know, it's just so cool when you read on the news the few times that special forces come in and, and wipe out the terrorists and free the, the captives. And this is what it's a picture of. You know, Satan's like a terrorist. Jesus comes and he overpowers him and he frees all those people that he had in bondage. But anecdotally, Satan offered the kingdom of the world to Jesus in his weakened state, if you remember. When Jesus went out to the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days, uh, I guess Satan figured he's weak physically. This is the time, if there was any time to get Jesus and tempt him or, you know, do whatever, this was the time to do it. So uh, Satan says to Jesus, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Well, not only did Jesus refuse the kingdoms in that way, but he freed the captives of that kingdom by force. And in the future, he will actually take the kingdoms without worshiping Satan, of course, on his own, as well as rule righteously, the Bible tells us. Isaiah, turn to Isaiah 53, verse 12. It's a very popular uh, portion of scripture, but... There may be a part in there that some of us may have overlooked. This is a messianic prophecy. Everybody knows Psalm 22, uh, 
Isaiah 53. These are messianic uh, sections, chapters here. But in verse 12, he says, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, uh, pre-incarnate, says, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. So there's a partial realization by dying on the cross, he freed people from, from captive. They don't have to be captive to sin, to the slavery of sin and death anymore. The other part of it comes with the actual uh, millennial kingdom. That part is yet to happen, to be fulfilled. So in verse 23, he says, uh, continuing down, going back to Luke 11, it says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, this is interesting because a few weeks ago, Jesus said, he said, he who, is not, he who is not against us is for us. And now he's saying, he who is not with me is against me. Aha, a Bible contradiction. Finally, we found one. Not so. If you take it contextually, it makes a lot of sense. The first one is in the context of a man, if you remember, who was casting out demons. And the disciples were a little jealous, probably, because he wasn't part of them and he he told them he told the man not to do it you're not part of the elite club and you would almost you would have to understand that this man was able to learn from Jesus he was in harmony with Jesus and he got what Jesus was saying so Jesus rebuked the disciples and said if he's not against me he's for me there's no way he could do these things and then right afterwards speak evil of me so contextually that makes sense. Now, in this particular one, Jesus is declaring war on the dark kingdom. He is binding the strong man. He is overcoming the strong man, plundering his palace, plundering his goods. Jesus goes into the darkest realm of spiritual uh, you know, creation, and he, he starts to break it apart. He stri- tries to destroy it. He's, he's declaring war on the dark kingdom. And what he's saying is we have no choice but to take sides. You can't be neutral here. In this war, if you are neutral, you immediately default to the side of the enemy. He who is not with me is against me. So contextually now, both of those statements make a lot of sense. And he says, he who doesn't gather with me scatters. Satan's job is to scatter. Jesus' job is to unify. I remember talking to, last week, uh, a missionary to Chechnya. And she was telling me we were going over the stuff all the really neat things that she did in Chechnya, which, if you know that area, is very war-torn. It's between Russia and the Chechnyan rebels. So she said, you know, we did a lot of work there, but now we can't go back there. It is so hostile, we can't go back into that area. She said, it's all scattered. And I just remember that as I was doing my, my plan here. But the amazing thing is I think God will still use that. See... God dispersed the Jews after the Assyrian invasion. God dispersed the Jews after the Babylonian invasion. In the first century, the, the other diaspora, God dispersed the Jews through all out, you know, the areas of the world. But I believe that God definitely uses bad for good. With those people, he would scatter them, and they would bring their message of salvation uh, to the other people. James writes to those people who were scattered. So it's a back and forth. Satan scatters, God gathers. Satan scatters again, and God gathers. It's, it's back and forth. But God can use the scattering to his advantage. Verse 24, it says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. 
Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is far worse than the first. So here we have the second illustration of satanic kingdom to illustrate a spiritual truth. First, we see a demon. He dispossesses a man, and he abdicates control over him. So the question is, was the demon forced out, or did he leave voluntarily? Well, people could give you a good argument on both sides, but it doesn't say. The second thing is the demon goes through uh, dry places looking for rest, but he doesn't find any. So he decides to go back to the man and repossess him, right? Only this time he brings with him seven other demons more wicked than himself, and the you know, there was a, the man was possessed originally by this one demon. When he comes back with the seven other wicked demons, this guy's a mess now. He totally, is, the last state is worse than the first. So it's, it's far worse. The interesting thing is, when the demon comes back, he finds the man he was possessing swept and put in order. Well, what does that mean? How do you sweep yourself and put yourself in order? It doesn't seem to make sense. Well, we could look at it physically. Did he come back and the guy started, you know, working out? He became a health nut, started eating alfalfa grass and was in good shape? I don't think so, because this is not physical. It's spiritual. Um, this man's life in some way was in order. What is this a picture of? Not spring cleaning, but a, spar a partial uh, spiritual cleaning. What does that mean? Well, let's do process of elimination. Could this man be a Christian, the man he was possessing? The Bible clearly says no, that a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they, they can't have fellowship with each other, and the Holy Spirit obviously is more power than Satan. So this is a person, it seems to, this person who is possessed gets you know, swept out, put in order. Right? This is a person who enjoys maybe the things of God. He starts to listen to the things of God. Maybe there's a little reformed. You know, he gets a little bit reformed in his life. He starts putting things in order, but he never makes the full commitment. There was a person in Bible, and many people in Bible history that fit this bill, and one of them was Herod Antipas. And everybody knows Herod Antipas is the guy that imprisoned John the Baptist, and he ended up having his head cut off. That's what we know about Herod Antipas. But did you know there's a small portion of Scripture that said that Herod actually enjoyed listening to Jesus? When, he, when Jesus wasn't telling them you're an adulterer, <laughs> probably he didn't like that part. But the other stuff he liked to hear. He knew that John the Baptist was a prophet of God and he liked to listen to John. But eventually what happened? He kills John the Baptist. He orders his execution. So he, had only, he only had a partial spiritual cleaning. He liked his ears to be tickled a little bit with the things of God, but he never made that commitment. And when the rubber met the road, he went back to his old life and he killed this man that he was listening to believing that he was a prophet of God. I say this in a loving way. Be careful when you dabble with the things of God, but you don't come off the fence. Um, Christianity is interesting to you. It's a novelty. It's a phase. Maybe you do it because your spouse wants you to do it, or your kids want you to do it, or whatever. You like the Christian culture. It's a nice culture. You like the doing, doing business with Christians because they pay you. That's a good thing, right? If you have a business... But maybe you're even here because you think you might find a trustworthy spouse. You know, you might find somebody of the opposite sex who is a Christian, probably won't cheat on you. That's a good thing, right? Now, I'm not saying I don't want you here, but what I'm saying is you need, if you're here and that's you, you need to be loyal to God. You need to go all the way for your sake, not mine or the church's sake. We welcome people to come in here. We don't care what your background is. But you see, a partial spiritual cleaning 
does nothing for you. It actually makes you worse because you have a false sense of security with a partial spiritual cleaning. So it's bad for you because the demon here brings seven more demons far wicked than himself. Why? Why does that demon bring seven more nasty friends worse than him? Because he doesn't want to lose that piece of real estate again. And to some people who are listening, that could be you. You could be that piece of real estate. If you're going to if you're going to get involved with the things of God, you've got to go all the way. There's a scripture I want to read to you. It's 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22. I don't know how this is coming across, but it should be coming across encouraging. 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22. I'll give you a second to get there. It says, for if, now the antecedent here is the false teachers, but there's no reason why this can't apply to anybody. It says, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivering, delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. That's pretty powerful. And there's a lot of other scriptures that speak about that type of situation. Hebrews 10, 25 through 31, if you're taking notes, is another one. You know, most times I get up here Sunday after Sunday and I preach from the pulpit to edify Christians. That's my job as a pastor is to build the body of Christ and you know, for somebody to come up and say, hey, I learned something new today. That's great. And I, and I can apply it to my life. Today, I'm not talking to Christians. Today, I'm talking to people who, with every beat of their heart and with every breath they take and with every night that they have a good night's sleep, they're barely escaping the flames of hell for another day. A few things. Number one that I would take out of this is don't be terribly impressed, impressed by evangelistic crusades. No matter how popular the preacher is, and I'm not saying names or anything like that. I mean, I believe that people do it with a good heart. But it's far better to lead a coworker to Christ or a neighbor to Christ and to help them grow, to teach them how to live, to disciple them, to help them to be inoculated against the wiles of the, of the devil. Better than preaching to a crowd where nobody ever follows up. I read this book by Ray Comfort called Revival's Golden Key. Very interesting book. These guys did it statistics. They did follow-ups on all the crusades. And the numbers were paltry. They were awful in the amount of follow-up that some of these crusades did. They would go. There was a lot of fanfare, a lot of hype into stadiums and stuff and all these decisions for Christ. And then they would leave. And a lot of these people weren't followed up on. They didn't know how to live. They didn't even know where to find anything in the Bible. It was, it was, that was it. Very interesting statistics. Um, Make a decision for Christ and nobody teaches you how to live or where to go. And, you know, that word crusade, I, I certainly, uh, if we do outreaches, I don't want to use that word crusade. How many Muslims do you think are going to be real comfortable going to a crusade? Hey, let's go to the crusade. What are you, nuts? You know, I mean, they need the gospel just as much as we do. So anyway, two, if you're coming here for the first time, I, I'm not looking to scare you away. That's not what this is about. I'm actually speaking to the Lifelong Committed Fence-Sitters Club because there are no fence-sitters in the kingdom. Jesus said you're either with me or you're against me. And three, reformation without Jesus is worthless. 
if you try to clean up your act without Jesus, it's just window dressing. Jesus spoke about the whitewashed tombs, the religious leaders. They looked good on the outside. They wore fancy clothes to make them look religious. They prayed on the corner of the streets. When they fasted, they, they, they looked like they were, their faces were distorted. They really gave the appearance that they were doing the religious thing, the Christian culture, so to speak. But he said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look really good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. So basically, looking good on the outside but still being damned is not a good thing. You know, it's historically documented that Nero Caesar, we all know him, he was a nut, right? He would take the Christians and bind them, and this is all documented. He would pour tar over them and light them while they were alive, and they would be his human candles. Uh, They they would be his human, whatever, uh, in, in, in his gardens. He was a really sick man. He did awful things, you know, tortured children, Uh, Very bizarre behavior. He actually set Rome on fire and blamed it on the Christians. Do you know that at some point in time early on in his uh, political life, he actually was a pretty decent leader? He was a a smart man, and he he did some really good things for Rome. Well, what changed? Well, there's a theory. Between the time that Nero was a decent guy and maybe was interested in possibly hearing some of the things of God or this new sect of Christianity— And the time he went nuts, between those two times, Paul had appealed to him. Remember the book of Acts says that he went to Agrippa, and then Agrippa had to let him go because he appealed all the way to Rome. So at some point in time, Paul met Nero and appealed to him just as he appealed to Agrippa. And what do you think he did? You think Paul didn't say anything? He gave him the full force gospel. Well, obviously Nero rejected it. And then look what happened to him. And he died young. He was, just, he was just out of his mind. He was nutty. And that's not a clinical term. But another person who kind of, you know, went nutty was Pharaoh. Pharaoh saw the miracles of God. He hardened his heart many times, right? He would see the plagues. He'd say, okay, I'll let the children of Israel go. And then he said, no, I'm not doing it. He'd change his mind. There would be another plague. And no doubt the people in, in Egypt were like, enough of these plagues. Let the children of Israel go. And he would do it in a moment of weakness or uh, humility, and then he would get enraged again and say, no, I'm not letting them go. But his own magicians, these pagan magicians, told Pharaoh, this Moses is doing these things by the finger of God, the real God. You know, maybe you should pay attention. But Pharaoh hardened his heart so many times that God hardened his heart, the Bible says. He was solidified in that state because God allowed him to be so he could make himself, uh, he could show himself great to the children of Israel. But uh, Pharaoh died in a blind rage in hot pursuit of Moses and the children of Israel. The Bible says that, check this out, when the Red Sea was parted, as they were going through the Red Sea, they saw a wall of water on each side. Could you imagine that? It's like the, the water just, it parted and it was like there was columns of water. And the only part that was dry, that cavern, was where they were crossing. Probably saw sharks and dolphins and all kinds of, probably like an aquarium, you know, who knows? So the children of Israel go through, Pharaoh and his army go through. Did Pharaoh really think that the God who allowed the children of Israel to pass was not going to let that column of water fall down on him? And that's exactly what what happened. So he was so overtaken and so enraged and so hardened that he killed himself and all his men that followed him. But so many people harden their hearts to God and they're blinded to the truth. Don't let that be you today. I want to turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2. Nine through twelve. 
Now this is uh, Paul speaking to the Thessalonians, and he's, you know, First Thessalonians. He speaks about the rapture, and now he's talking about basically the Antichrist coming and a lot of the end time events, and eventually the second coming of Christ. But he says in verse nine, he says, "The coming of the lawless one is according to the works of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders." There's going to be counterfeit miracles. You know, whatever Jesus does, whatever God does, Satan tries to reproduce, but they're paltry, obviously, compared to God. In verse 10, it says, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Ouch. This is a point of time where God solidifies these people in their folly. They just, they don't want the truth. They, they love unrighteousness. And eventually God says, fine, I'm going to set you in that way. You know, it's like when you're a kid and you make a, a funny face and your mom says your face is going to freeze. Sort of the same thing. It's, it's their hearts. You know, their hearts were against God and they didn't want to believe the truth. And God said, fine, I'm going to set you there. Just like Pharaoh, just like Herod, right? And uh, so what happens here is he sends them a strong delusion. God sends them a strong delusion that they'll believe the lie, this great lie that comes up, that all the people are going to fall blindly into and believe, the Antichrist. He, he, he sets them up to believe that. That's a pretty, pretty uh, amazing place to be. You know, Isaiah 55, 6 says, you know, the Bible says, Seek the Lord while he may be found, indicating there's a point in time where he's not going to be found. That's frightening. Don't be that. If, you know, if you're not sure today, don't let that be you. Let me just read uh, a news clip. Didn't anybody remember? It was like a comedy years ago. Uh, it was called Not, Necessary, the, Not Necessarily the News. It was a spoof on the media. Nope, not, but it was pretty funny. They would make fun of how media was reported. Well, I actually looked up uh, yesterday. The, I have a, a news thing that's on my, my cable internet. And it, it talked about all the things that are happening in one day, okay? Now, this is just what they can fit on the page. Let me read this to you. It almost sounds surreal. It almost sounds like a joke. It's the opening to a joke, but it's really kind of morbid. First thing is 3,700 GIs headed to Baghdad. Why? Because Baghdad's a mess. The second one is security is high in the Seattle area, six shot at a Jewish center. That's not good. A plane carrying skydivers crashes in Missouri, killing four. State radio says that Iran rejects United Nations nuke resolution and Chavez is going to meet with Aminajad. This is great. Those two nuts are getting together. They should get Kim Jong-il there and have a mixed nut party. <laughs> the next one is a Florida woman is missing from cruise ship off of Italy. We've seen a few of those, haven't we, with the cruise ships? Uh, five killed in New Orleans shooting. Friends. The Colorado killer who claimed 49 victims was kind. Who cares what kind of a neighbor this guy was? He was sick. He killed 49 people by himself. So, you know, if you don't think that some of these things could either happen to you or affect you, you're fooling yourself. You've got your head in the sand. The point I'm trying to make is, again, I'm not talking to Christians today. If, I don't, I'm looking out. I don't know who's, you know, I don't, I'm not looking at every person. But if you're here and the Lord of God is reaching your heart, we're going to give you an, uh, an opportunity at the end of service to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Don't dabble in the things of God. People say, don't dabble in the occult. It'll hook you. Don't dabble in the things of God. Because if you play around with it, you do it, 
you, you go away from it, you do it, you, you're, you're playing with fire. Because now when you stand before God in judgment and you say, well, I never knew. Really? Let me bring back to your mind that church service. Let me bring back to your mind your conversation with your friend who was a believer. Don't do it. Make, make the commitment. Go all the way. Go for it. Verse 27, going back to Luke 11. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Obviously, the people were blown away by Jesus's words and his ability to dissect, to understand and to command the spiritual realm. People marveled. And one woman can't contain her emotions and yells out, you know, blessed are the breasts that nurse you and the, um, the womb that bore you. Uh, in that culture, a successful man, it just was a cultural thing, a man who was successful would bring honor to his mother. And that's probably where that statement came from. But Jesus here is lovingly showing her her priorities, or the priorities. Number one, just as the prophets were a vehicle uh, for God's word to get to the people, so Mary was also a vehicle for God's literal word, Jesus Christ, to get to the people and to fulfill scripture. They were doing their job obediently and not to receive any special worship or praise. As a matter of fact, if you look at Acts chapter 1, after the ascension of Jesus, all the saints gather together, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, is one of them. But after Acts chapter 1, she's not heard of anymore in church history. The focus now becomes exactly on what Jesus said here. The focus becomes, in the book of Acts, is those who hear the word of God and keep it, gives birth to the spread of the church. So his words ring true. I've titled this message, There's No Fence Sitters in the Kingdom. Let me read you what Jesus says to a church in, uh, of Laodicea. This is one of my favorite passages. Revelation 3, 15. Revelation 3, 15. Jesus says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Boy, that is, that is a Bible study in itself. But he's saying this to a church. You think you got it all together. You think you got it going on, but you don't. And these are the reasons why. Repent. Those whom I love, I chasten and I rebuke. Uh, so, you know, it's in John 15, 4 through 7. John 15, 4 through 7. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. I mean, it's some pretty heavy stuff here. It's, there's a picture of abiding. There's a picture of that relationship. We talked about uh, last week about the Our Father, the model prayer, and what does it mean? It's all about a relationship with God, and there has to be that abiding, because if the if the uh, the branch doesn't bear fruit, it's good for nothing except to be burned in the fire. That's a pretty heavy statement that Jesus makes there. Um, the irony of the tragedy is that Jesus showed those, okay, going back to Luke, he showed those who accused him of working in league with Satan were actually the ones who were in subjection to Satan by not taking a stand in the battle of good versus evil. They were just heckling from the sidelines. From exorcism to rejection, Right? from rejection to two object lessons. Saw the two examples of, the, uh, of, of the, the Lord of the dwelling, Satan. From two object lessons to a question of eternal consequences that all the world needs to ask themselves. In obedience to God, I asked the same question 2,000 years later. Will you definitively stand with Christ or against him? Because there's no middle ground in this war. Let's pray. We're actually the ones who are in subjection